Hey, hey, here it is, folks. My voice is still a little what the Mexicans call mermado, but whatever. It's a Tuesday, and I want my shows to come out in the top of the week again. Thanks big to Blaine Dietrich again, who got me some e-currency over the break, and I'm not sure how that's going to work out, but who also got me some Vietnam books that I would have otherwise been totally unable to lay hands on. I'm going back through Bernard Falls stuff, that is, The Street Without Joy and Hell in a Very Small Place to take better notes, and once that's done, I should actually be good to go on the first episode. Fingers crossed. Reach out, share my stuff, be a joyful member of the SFD community, because I am so happy to be back. I'm John Coombs, we're talking about maintenance, and this is Safe for Democracy. You will not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer. I have saved this one opportunity to speak briefly to you about the mindless menace of violence in America, which again stains our land. And I sometimes wonder why we Americans enjoy punishing ourselves so much with our own uh, criticism. This is a pretty good land. I'm not saying you never had it so good, but that is a fact, isn't it? In Iraq, a dictator is building and hiding weapons, and we will not allow it. This is a different kind of war. There are no marching armies or solemn declarations. Its goal to defeat American power. No one, no matter where he lives or what he does, can be certain who next will suffer from some senseless act of bloodshed. We condemn in the strongest possible terms this egregious display of hatred, bigotry, and violence on many sides. On many sides. There's a time when the operation of the machine becomes so odious, makes you so sick at heart, that you can't take part. You can't even passively take part. And you've got to put your bodies upon the gears and upon the wheels, upon the levers, upon all the apparatus, and you've got to make it stop. And you've got to indicate to the people who run it, to the people who own it, that unless you're free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live. I want to talk to you folks about maintenance. And along with a couple of episodes from back in October and November, like both the ends and means ones, this falls into a category of shows based on wisdom from my pop, Dave Coombs. I used to wish, as I was having my radical awakening towards the end of college and into the Peace Corps, that some great man or woman would arise with politics in line with all the stuff I was discovering at the time. The kind of skepticism of capitalism and reticence towards the fact and use of American power that underline everything on SFD. I wanted this person to step forward and lead me and my generation into the glorious future. I distinctly remember reading Arthur Kessler's Darkness at Noon out in the hallway of my place up in the Sierra and thinking that even though the communism that the protagonist comrade Rubishov describes was abhorrent, I wished that I had the same political faith and clarity of purpose that he tells the early Bolsheviks as having. 
It was a faith like that which we Catholics are supposed to have, even though members of the church, the party, may err as a historical actor, it moves infallibly. What I mean to say is that at that point, now that I better understood the problems at work in the world, I wanted a solution, or at least somebody who had one. Not many and piecemeal patches, but a single, unitary, transcendent political program to follow. That same desire for all-encompassing solutions has been at the root of humanity's perennial attraction towards absolutist ideologies. Those of the last century, like communism, fascism, and Chicago school libertarianism, and of this one, like Trumpism, somewhat, and fascism, again, somewhat, offer a solution to the mess of actual politics, and of democratic politics in particular. They offer a solution to history itself, or at least the better thought out ones do. Each of them imagines a kind of end state, a utopia that's achieved, and which, once achieved, will be borne up by some supernatural extra-human force, rather than an ongoing political struggle by man. Classical Marxism looks to the imperative of the historical dialectic, leading from industrialized capitalism to a revolution of the proletariat, to a working man's paradise so perfect that politics itself will fade away along with the state. Libertarianism casts its eyes towards the market, which will, if we finally release it from all government interference, settle all of our problems through commerce. The state will shrivel up until all it does is police contracts and take care of national defense, while Adam Smith's invisible hand guides us into the future. Fascism has always been less rigorous, but it was also in its early years the most explicit reaction to representative democracy. It looks to the will to power of exceptional men to cut through all the bickering of ineffectual politicians and unresponsive bureaucracies, expecting those exceptional men to lead us into a golden age brought back out of an imagined past and sustained once achieved, by the inner force of the chosen people, or Volk. Trumpism, well, it's a fascism of morons for morons, and it's confused enough that even calling it an ideology gives it more credit than it deserves. But it too looks to strong men to return the U.S. to the hands of real white Americans, imagining a golden age that probably looks a lot like the 50s, but with more cable TV. I spent some time in the Peace Corps trying to write a manifesto tying together everything I'd learned about how what I'd been taught was wrong, not exactly on the facts, but in its foundation. This podcast, both the shorts and the history shows, is basically the continuation of that manifesto. And by the time I was writing that document, I'd made peace with the idea that I had no positive program. What seemed more important at the time was to tear away this veil of self-righteous self-satisfaction that was the principal element in American politics and foreign policy. I'd gotten pretty comfortable with the idea of having no grand plan, versus my earlier pining for, basically, an ubermensch with absolutist politics, in part because of an essay by Isaiah Berlin that the New York Review of Books had republished for one new year or another. It's called A Message to the 21st Century, and it's short and lucid and costs nothing to access, so it's more than worth your time. In it, Berlin lays out the ways that great unifying political philosophies like communism and fascism and public faith in the same destroyed his century in its two great wars and the many smaller ones that followed. Let me explain, he says in the essay. If you are truly convinced that there is some solution to all human problems, that one can conceive an ideal society which men can reach if only they do what is necessary to attain it, then you and your followers must believe that no price can be too high to pay in order to open the gates of such a paradise. Only the stupid and malevolent will resist once certain simple truths are put to them. Those who resist must be persuaded, 
If they cannot be persuaded, laws must be passed to restrain them. If that does not work, then coercion, if need be violence, will inevitably have to be used. If necessary, terror, slaughter. The root conviction which underlies this is that the central questions of human life, individual or social, have one true answer which can be discovered. It can and must be implemented, and those who have found it are the leaders whose word is law." Unquote. Berlin has his own very good reasons for opposing that conviction, and everyone who can ought to go and read them. But I have some different ones, which come from my position as more of a historian to Berlin's political philosopher. At base, it's that utopian politics of any stripe violate the unfortunate and depressing truth of human existence, that absolutes are nearly always misguided, that the answer to any given problem lies in some unsatisfyingly arbitrary middle position, and that as soon as humanity achieves anything good, it immediately begins to fall apart and can only be maintained by heroic human effort. Check those assertions against the politics I put out in this show. I've made my position on defense spending clear in episodes like Abolish the Army, but I can recognize that no defense at all would come with its own problems. I've talked about education being on a spectrum from conformist to liberationist, and I've lamented in some shows that we're so much closer to conformity than liberation in the U.S., but I know that you've got to spend some amount of time on actual subjects of study and fact, or else you'd never be able to run a society at all. And while I think radical free marketeerism of the kind that we induced General Augusto Pinochet to apply in Chile is nothing more or less than the best way to give the rest of the money to the rich, I can see that total state control of the market is as bad a way to try to reach a just or prosperous society. I say that the failure of absolutes is depressing, and the necessity of arbitrary middle positions is unsatisfying because the absolutes are certain and comforting. Libertarians tend to be so maddeningly smug because they're certain. Free up that market and we'll get there. And because that certainty is totally immune to evidence, there's no need for anxious grappling with belief. A thinking person trying to find the actual happy medium has to say at one time, well, a little bit this way, and at another, a little bit that way. You've got no sure and comfortable lodestar to follow, which means that deciding what's right and where to go at any given moment takes not faith, but work, real mental effort. The other massively unsatisfying thing about the middle ground is that it depends on maintenance. I said this was going to be one of those dad wisdom shows, so let me illustrate that point for a minute. Like I think I've mentioned a lot of times before, my father ran body shops at General Motors before he retired. Dad was, reputedly, maybe the best dude to run body shops at GM of his generation of managers, in part because his career took him through Orthodox GM in Detroit, hippie experimental GM at Saturn, Japan-focused GM in China, and back through to Michigan, all of which gave him a more thoroughgoing depth of knowledge than most of his contemporaries. Anyway, Dad was at the tail end of that second Michigan tour at a plant in Pontiac, whose body shop he'd fixed up pretty good when his boss, Bill Boggs, started sending him down to a plant in Lordstown, Ohio. The body shop there was, every couple of months, a mess, so Dad went down every couple of months to straighten things out. And after a bit over a year of that, if I remember right, Boggs told Dad that he'd be going down to Lordstown permanently. After the move, Dad spent a little while lying low, as it were, seeing how things were run, and then did a whole bunch of stuff that I've talked about in previous shows. But here, the pertinent thing was that on a Monday, he asked his maintenance manager to write down on a sheet of paper what he thought his job was. And every day that week, Dad asked this guy if he'd got that sheet of paper. Every day, the guy said no. On the Friday of that week, 
Dad told him he'd better have that sheet on his desk by the end of business, and by end of business he hadn't left it there. So Dad went and found this guy and asked him again. The guy said, Dave, you know what I do? I wait until something breaks, and then I fix it. And when Dad gets to this point in the story, he says, I knew even before I went down there that I'd have to fire this guy. I just needed him to tell me. Dad had to get rid of that dude because he didn't understand one of the fundamental aspects of maintenance, which is that you can't wait until something breaks to fix it. A minute of downtime on an assembly line is disastrously expensive, and the half hour or hour it might take to solve a problem build into the tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars like nothing. What you have to be doing is constantly monitoring every machine, every robot, every part of the line, and you have to use every spare moment to swap out parts and oil robot arms and do whatever else you have to do in a car plant. I'm not, I don't really know about word stuff. It's a much more laborious job than waiting until something breaks. It's much more mentally heavy. It's the same in human institutions, especially those that politics and political systems give to us. We have this idea that if we could just set up something right at the beginning, it'll run itself after that. Maybe it's a school system, if we just design the curriculum well enough. Or maybe it's social security, or the way we set up the military. But the second something exists, especially human institutions, the rot sets in. And it's only through constant, constant monitoring and tweaking that we keep those things even as good as they were at the outset. Improving them from that point is an even more Herculean effort. The big thing that bugged Dad about moving down to Lordstown was that his body shop, the one that he'd tuned up in Pontiac, they were going to give that shop to somebody else. The problem being that most body shop managers weren't like my dad. Most of them were more like that maintenance guy, and moreover, most of them looked at their current shop as just the latest step on the road to somewhere higher up. So he knew that when this new guy walked into his old shop, that guy wouldn't be looking at why it works so well, but rather would ask, on noticing that it wasn't having those constant breakdowns, why it still costs so much to run. All the overtime for engineers and tradesmen doing repairs, all the lost cash from new parts being brought in before the old ones had reached their expiration dates, all the upfront costs of maintenance that keep the disastrous back-end ones at bay. And almost without doubt, what the new manager would do is eliminate all that costly stuff. All that, to him, preventative, wasteful maintenance. What's more, for a while, and especially in a shop that was as well put together as the one Dad left in Pontiac, the cuts he made might reflect well on that new manager. If he was on a fast promotion track and only spent a couple of years there, they might reflect really well. Because in a shop like that, even though the rot starts the second you stop scouring it away, it might take a couple of years for it to show, for the new parts to get old enough to fail, for the maintenance manager to get complacent, for the breakdowns to begin. Once those breakdowns begin, though, they snowball past and past and past the cost of what it would have taken to prevent them. And whereas it would have been a draining, constant mental and physical effort to keep the shop running as well as it had been when Dad left it, returning it to that state becomes a mountain, an Everest of work and expense. Now, the other part of that two-year manager's thinking that trips him up is related to our absolutist ideologies, or at least it's analogous. It's in part utopian. The idea that you can reach some level of goodness, or the thing just works-ness, in a shop or anywhere else that will be self-sustaining. Even if they think they can keep it going just exactly as it was when Dad left it, that's better, but it's still not right. 
What they don't get is that Dad applied this other philosophy, related to his philosophy of maintenance, in all aspects of the shop all the time. This other philosophy wasn't of my dad's own invention, and was something that he picked up between Saturn and China. Something called Kaizen, something that's become famous at least among manufacturers because of the Toyota production system. Kaizen has its roots in a couple of American economists who came to help restart production in Japan during the occupation after the Second World War, but in any case, it's been dad's working philosophy since at least the late 1990s. And Kaizen is at base a philosophy of continuous improvement. So whereas the manager that took over Dad's Pontiac shop might have seen it as perfect in that it produced the right number of trucks in the right amount of time every day, Kaizen would tell him that the shop wasn't perfect in that no shop can ever be perfect. There exists a continuum with perfect at one end, and all you can do is try to move towards it all the time. Which means looking at every aspect of the shop, from the speed of the line to the number of movements in a robotic routine to the air temperature to the maintenance manager's priorities and asking, over and over and over, how can we make this better? Now, after years and years of this, Dad came to two more ideas that seemed to him to be necessary corollaries of Kaizen. The first is that on that continuum, from total failure to perfect shop, you cannot ever, even for a minute, stand still. You're either getting better or worse, and since getting better takes excruciating effort, it's either that or you're getting worse. The other related or resulting idea is something that Peace Corps also loves, which is that process is product. Since you're never going to reach the goal, the perfect end of the continuum, it's all the more important that you move towards it in the right way, since moving towards it is all that you'll ever have. In Peace Corps, for example, with the group of kids I ran, it would often have been much quicker to get funding for a project by buddying up to the mayor of my town or one of his lackeys and asking for it as a favor. But because inculcating an uncorrupted take on development was way more important to us than a set of trash cans or a campout or whatever the immediate goal was, instead we'd sit down with the kids to write grant applications and do the grunt work. Those two-year managers at GM might decide, on seeing Dad's old Pontiac plant, that they could really burn the unions to cut costs on those tradesmen, or that running a part 20% past its expiry date would be the best way to squeeze maximum efficiency out of the shop. And if they're only around for two years, they might even be right. But once those breakdowns begin, they've destroyed the process by which the shop had previously improved. And not only will the shop have that mountain of work to get back to where it was, it won't have the gear to climb it either. So how does all that wind back around to the politics we were talking about at the beginning of the show? Well, first is that those radical ideologies, the ones with utopian visions, they fail to recognize that political systems need as much and much more complicated maintenance than body shops. Moreover, they miss that the health of those political systems moves along the same kind of continuum from totally dysfunctional to whatever the ideal of the system is, whether that's perfectly democratic or what have you, with the corresponding rule that they're either getting better or worse all the time, and that getting better requires focused and excruciating effort. All those absolutist utopias imagine that once we get there, either to the working man's paradise or the libertarian totally free market, then human effort will be allowed to end, and something else, like the dialectic or the invisible hand, will take over and absolve us of the duty of maintenance. The second thing is that I think that we in the US have been, for a very long time, like the manager that took over for dad. We found, at some point, a system that just seemed to work, and we took it for granted. Now, I don't mean this only happened once. I think you can see in the Gilded Age and the progressive reforms that followed 
or the Civil War, us waking up to the fact that the shop didn't work anymore. But there's some most recent point, probably after the Second World War, where we began taking it for a given for the last time. The Democratic Party, for instance, stopped organizing among the working class. The Republican Party, like that manager burning bridges with the tradesmen, decided that running the country without organized labor would be more efficient, and they've been torching unions since Reagan broke the air traffic controllers. We watched as corporations regained control over our politics they haven't had since laissez-faire. And although statistics show that our perennial panic over STEM education is overblown, we let faith in and understanding of the liberal arts and real civics shrivel up and die in our schools. And maybe for decades, all of that worked great for the boomers, like it would have for the manager that followed my dad. But now we're beginning to see the cracks in the system that we've failed to maintain. The rot, having eaten away much of what's below, is beginning to show at the surface. Maybe in the White House. Third, process is product, in politics as in production. And we've had a political party applying that principle negatively in the United States for decades now. That is, the GOP, and chiefly, yes, just the GOP, has been destroying process to get to product. Take just, for example, Mitch McConnell. The Senate Majority Leader destroyed centuries, centuries of precedent, to steal a Supreme Court seat for Neil Gorsuch. He overrode centuries of precedent working towards the ACA repeal and December's tax bill, closed-door sessions and midnight meetings, and bills shielded from the public despite their magnitude. Like a bad Peace Corps volunteer, he was using a malign process to get to his immediate goals. Over the last 30 or even 40 years, the American right, rather than working to convince the country of its ideas, has planted a propaganda apparatus in talk radio and Fox News that succeeded in giving it the power, but which has destroyed the common ground for argument and has turned a good chunk of the country towards a moron's version of fascism. And these are not insignificant changes or damages or ones that will, once made, easily restrict themselves to the GOP. It would have been unthinkable for either party to use a government shutdown as leverage only a couple of years ago. Now the Democrats will have to confront an outraged base if they don't do that this month. It would have been unthinkable to filibuster more than a few times a year two decades ago. Now 60 votes is a rule in the Senate, although Mitch McConnell has been regularly implementing nearly unprecedented measures like reconciliation to get around that. Holding up a Supreme Court nomination for anything but competence was unimaginable even three years ago. Now it's an open question whether any judge will make the court unless one party holds both the Senate and the White House. The Republicans have achieved their short-term goals in spades. They control the federal government and nearly all of the states, and they've used that control to roll back regulation, steal a court seat, pass their tax cuts, and undermine the ACA. The only costs have been all of the norms that let our federal government function for the last 240-odd years and a pernicious national campaign of voter suppression and racial gerrymandering. Not exactly maintenance. Not exactly Kaizen. The thing of it is, is that it's much easier to keep moving along that continuum from bad to perfect when you've got some momentum. At his old shop, Dad had everybody on the same team, everyone looking towards the same goal. And even that kind of maintenance was Herculean. Coming back to that shop once a series of two-year managers had run it into the ground, well, he'd have to replace people and machines and even harder ideas. Not just to get back to where it was, but to start moving in the right direction at all. So what does all this stuff together mean? 
Well, first, I'm hoping that if Trump's presidency makes one thing clear to the great mass of Americans, it's that we've been like one of those two-year managers. That maybe the American political system is well-designed, but that it's only as good or strong as our efforts make it, and that we've been slacking on that effort for a very long time. That the rot has been creeping in, that we have not been scouring it away, and that Donald Trump is only the ugly mushroom head of the great web of fungus that lies below. The turn of the democratic base towards active organized leftism gives me hope, because even if you don't like leftist politics, you've got to realize that we need two poles in our system, and the Democratic Party's complacency and willingness to cease organizing and sleepwalk into corporate liberalism is a huge part of what allowed Republicans to run so far to the right and to start disregarding the process in the first place. So that's good. But what I'm afraid of is that we on the left will forget all that we've learned the minute that we retake the Congress or the White House or the states. Because that is our habit, to think that we've made it, and that having made it there's no more need for maintenance. But there is no perfect liberal state or liberal platform, and there will be no point at which any of us can stop pushing. A little bit this way one day, and a little bit that way the next. If I were podcasting in another century, my worries would be less existential. History, and especially politics, are cyclical. Sometimes you're winning, and the maintenance is going on, and sometimes you're not, and it's not, but it'll come around again. The problem being that this century may well be exceptional. Trump is already proving that the Cold War framework might have been necessary for keeping the nuclear peace. But the big one, if it is, God willing, not the bomb, will be climate change. Like I keep saying over and over again on this show. And climate change will mean continual shocks to our and the world system. Natural disasters, crop failures, epidemics, famine, mass migration, resource conflict, and a refugee problem that will probably only accelerate from the present moment. If a body shop is tough enough to turn around in the best of times, it may be impossible in the times that have been given to us. Camus wrote in The Myth of Sisyphus that the moral, personal response to an absurd world without ultimate meaning wasn't suicide, as it might appear to be, but to be like the man in the Greek legend, to confront the meaninglessness of every day with a smile and start rolling it on up the hill. The challenges of this century might confront us with a similar kind of political hopelessness, the knowledge that there might be no turning the shop around, that there might in our lifetimes be at best partial success and mostly failure, to save our republic, to stop at two degrees centigrade, to salvage what good there is of the world system. I hope that we realize, like Camus, that the answer isn't a surrender to that hopelessness, but an even firmer resolve to wake up and smile and put our shoulder to the stone every day until the day we die. Because there is nothing, nothing else to do.